This is how we overcome We're moving out of kingdom Reaching to the world Arms open, arms open, arms open yeah This is how we practice Let's go for it well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. And we are starting a new conversation uh, today mm-hmm. uh, after having spent a goodly number of weeks taking a look at the familiar words uh, that we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Eric and I were thinking maybe a new direction is to take a look at a, a, a character and a story in the Bible who is less well-known but deserves to be better known than she is. Um, and to see what things these the stories of, of uh, characters like her have to say to us. So uh, we thought we would turn today to uh, a short book in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament uh, called the Book of Ruth. Uh, it's one of those stories that uh, if you've never read it, you can it's it fits the old definition of a short story. You could probably read it in one sitting, uh, and and it, it it's a self-contained story, but it also sets itself up as a prequel for other important stories later on. So uh, uh, Erica, just so we can all land in the same place, would you give us the the, the Reader's Digest short version of what, what's the story of Ruth about? So Ruth takes time, um, takes place in the time of the judges. And so, okay. so we have a time period um, there. And it's a story of, um, it starts off with Naomi and her husband and her two sons. There is a famine in the land of Israel. And so they have moved to Moab um, to survive the famine because there is food in Moab. And while there, her sons marry two Moabite women named Orpha and Ruth. And unfortunately, before we even get to the end of the first chapter, we find out that Naomi's husband and her two sons have died. And so now you've got three widows mm-hmm. left in a foreign country for, for one of them, and they don't know what to do. And so Naomi decides, since she is now widowed and she has no sons, so she has no men to take care of her, she's going to move back to Israel. And the assumption, I mean, like, this is the kind of thing we need to say out loud maybe in the 21st yes. century, uh, that would have been sort of assumed in the era of the judges is when you say they had no husbands so they have no one to provide them because there are not lots of jobs available this is not the, the society is not set mm-hmm. up that women can go oh I'll, I'll go be an architect now that's not a choice and so uh, she is dependent upon other uh, other arrangements for her sustenance for her livelihood yeah a woman goes from being her father's daughter to her husband's wife to her son's mother and when all of those male relationships are gone, then she has to find yeah. someone else to care for her. Now, and and we could say too that in part of uh, Israel's background in the in the story and the 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 back the historical backdrop of the nation of Israel, there are laws and intentions that were meant to provide um, support network for mm-hmm. people who found themselves in those circumstances, but. Here at the beginning, where Naomi has left that, uh, living now in a foreign land, that's part of what is the drive to go back to Israel. Is there's no provision for her uh, living in a foreign land, but if she goes back to her homeland, theoretically, there's at least structure set up to help provide for those who are without other sustenance. Okay, so there, there's the backdrop. Yeah. So Naomi heads back uh, to Israel, and her daughter-in-law start to follow her, and she says, "No, no, 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 no. You're widows too. I have no more sons to give to you." You stay here because hopefully you're still young enough. You can marry again. You can have, you know, a life, you know, much like Naomi no longer has. Um, Orpha decides to stay and go back to her household. But Ruth decides to follow Naomi. She says, your God will become my God. Your people will become my people. You know, that often we hear at weddings. And so, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> it's, 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 it's so not, not a wedding passage. It's not a wedding passage, and yet, like, the words, like, fit so well that there's something mm-hmm. really, really beautiful about that. Yeah. <laughs> so she heads back um, with Naomi back to Israel, and 
as you said, Steve, you know that there are there are systems, there are, there are laws in place to take care of the widow. Mm-hmm. And so they go back, and Naomi goes back to her her household, to her land, and she sends Ruth out to go and and pluck grain from the fields, which is one of those things that you know widows and orphans you're supposed to leave whatever grain kind of falls to the side for the widows and orphans. So she sends Naomi out, or Ruth out to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, through that, she runs into this guy named Boaz, mm-hmm. who is the, the head of the field. And they develop this relationship. Boaz tells his workers, now you take care of this woman. You don't, you know, leave her, make sure she's got grain for mm-hmm. herself and for Naomi. Because, she, again, she's a foreigner. Right. You know, and while they're supposed to take care of foreigners in Israel. Human but, beings are not great at following commandments. Like no. Take care of the foreigner. <laughs> they're not. And the Moabites are really people that they look down right, upon right, highly. Right. And so, um, so they... Naomi or Ruth and Boaz build this relationship to the and then she tells she goes back and she tells Naomi about this and Naomi's like oh my gosh Boaz is one of our kinsmen he's mm-hmm. one of our relatives yeah now he would be uh, Naomi's relative but again Ruth is a foreigner so they, yeah. this this is this is okay this is kosher that that, that a dating relationship uh, emerges from here that, that Ruth doesn't have any biological relationship to Boaz yeah no she does not have a biological relationship to Boaz Boaz is akin to Naomi right uh-huh. Uh, her mother-in-law, and so they they come up with this plan where um, Ruth goes in and meets Boaz at night, and um, as the story tells us, he she uncovers his feet and lays next to him. They wake up in the morning, and they have this conversation, and it basically comes out that Boaz is going to redeem Naomi eventually, hopefully to marry her and provide children for her, so then he can take care of both her. And Naomi. So the uh, and the idea is ha- whatever exactly happens uh, in, in on the threshing floor with a, a blanket <laughs> and uncovered feet in the morning. Boaz interprets what's happened as basically a marriage proposal and says, yes. "Like, and this is going to be mm-hmm. setting into motion uh, a way to." And, and the, even that word "redeem" is is a weird uh, word that we might need to, to unpack because either for us it's a very very religious word like Christ is our redeemer, or you redeem a coupon, and somewhere in between is this <laughs> understanding of to redeem is to buy something back to buy uh-huh. it. So the the one of those laws that was part of Israel's uh, long history was that when um, land got either foreclosed on or been bought up by somebody else, and someone loses their family inheritance, a neighbor or not a neighbor, a, a, a close. Uh, relation could buy that land back to redeem it uh-huh. and in order to, to carry it on so that descendants uh, could continue to have to possess that land. So it was in, in a lot of ways sort of about ensuring that family lines would, would n- nobody would be permanently landless. And, yes. and in this, let's say, midnight proposal, <laughs> um, uh, Boaz takes it that uh, that Ruth is asking for him to take that role of being the, the redeemer who will buy back uh-huh. the land that's gone, foreclosed on and instead to, to make it so that Naomi's family and now Ruth's family can continue uh-huh. to, to possess it and it can go on. Okay. But Boaz is a good righteous man and he knows that he is not the next closest okay. kin. Uh-huh. There's another anonymous guy who appears in the story who never gets named. Yeah. We- <laughs> he could be. This is something out of a Charles Dickens novel too, right? <laughs> so this, is, this guy appears but doesn't want to take up the, the no. chance. No, Boaz goes to him because he is the closest kinsman that's still alive and he he offers the chance for this this guy to buy back the land, yeah. But he he says if you buy back the land, you're also basically buying with it. It's a package deal. It means you'll provide for this. Family. <laughs> you're going to provide yeah. for not only Naomi but also for Ruth, this right. Moabite, this foreigner. The guy doesn't want to do that, mm-hmm. and so eventually Boaz buys back the land, and they get married and they have children, 
which eventually turn into the line of David, which eventually turns into the line of Jesus. So this is one of those stories. Uh, like in some ways, this is a, this is an outlier just in the Bible itself because it's a self-contained story mm-hmm. that doesn't require centuries and centuries of backstory and centuries more of like it, it sort of hangs together as a story with a happy ending hooray we're all happy for Ruth and Boaz uh, but it also sticks in the Bible as a nod ahead toward one of one of Ruth's great grandsons uh, when she and Boaz get married is uh, Obed who becomes the father of Jesse who becomes the father of mm-hmm. David and David is this not only the, the king who's remembered as sort of the archetypal king in Israel's life but this ancestor of Jesus as well so that's part of why Israel remembers this story mm-hmm. uh, other than it's it's the closest thing the Bible has to a romantic comedy um, <laughs> but it, it wasn't just the quaintness or the sentimentality of the story yeah. that, that was remembered for but a piece of it is that this is in the in the backstory of where King David comes from and then mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Christians also say this is Jesus' uh, ancestry too. Um, so there's there's the overarching plot of it. But what are, what are other things that, that emerge in the story? What are things that are important for us to know? Why why is this something that, that gets remembered or held on to other than just oh yeah, and there's a there's a cameo appearance for David at the end. <laughs> uh, well, part of it is, and we've mentioned this before already, that that Ruth is a foreigner. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a foreigner that eventually marries into Israelite culture, which is something that just doesn't happen in Israelite culture. Right, right. And so the fact that, you know, Naomi welcomes her back to come back with her and wants to care for her, and the fact that Boaz redeems her as a foreigner is, is the epitome of what Israelite law says, you yeah. know. Maybe not to marry foreigners, because, they, you know, there is a law against there's, marrying there's Moabites. A, there's a, there's a in, yeah, there's, there's a tension even within the, the Old Testament about how are we supposed to relate to outsiders? Are we, are we for them or against them? And sometimes there's this, well, don't, don't let the, that outside culture influence. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be a light to mm-hmm. the nations. You're not supposed to get caught up. But also there's this recurring. You're supposed to treat uh, foreign nationals, people who, who are resident aliens, is sometimes mm-hmm. how the translation puts it in English, treat them with the same respect and love and care as you would your own citizens, that that's a non-negotiable in Israel's law as well. Yeah, because she's not a foreigner who's trying to lead them away from God. She's a foreigner who has accepted right, right, right. You know, this God, that your people will be my people, your God will be my God right, passage. Right. And again, we use in weddings, but not... <laughs> right, but yeah, without the, without the asterisk of this was originally spoken between a mother-in-law well, and a daughter-in-law when it was Moabite, yeah, but <laughs> they're good words anyway. Yes. <laughs> So, so that's one of the, the keys of this. What are some others, Steve, that we want to pull out from this story? One, one of the, one of the um, curious things about this story is, um, unlike, say, Moses, who gets a booming voice from heaven to time to time and actually mm-hmm. gets to see God's glory, or Abraham, who apparently sometimes would have walks and talks with God, uh, like an Aaron Sorkin TV show where God and, and Abraham would walk and talk and have conversations... The, the name for God appears in this text, but only sort of like in passing conversation, but God doesn't emerge as a speaking character. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this is a story that seems to be very much grounded out of everyday, ordinary life. There, there's nothing, there's no miracles in this story to nope. report. Um, and yet the, the, the storytellers of the people of Israel found this an important one to hold on to in part because there's, there's a really, really important idea in, um, in Israel's faith, the, uh, a word we have a hard time translating in English, and sometimes it gets translated as uh, loving kindness or steadfast love mm-hmm. uh, or faithfulness might be another translation. It, it's one of those words we, we don't do well in English because it covers a lot, and English isn't great at that. Um, 
the, the Hebrew of it is chesed. It's one of those words that sounds like you've got something in the back of your throat if you're going to say it right. Um, and uh, sometimes that's translated as, like I say, loving kindness or uh, uh, steadfast love or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's one of Yahweh, the God of Israel's like defining character traits. Mm-hmm. Again and again, you find this recurring refrain in, in the Old Testament of, you know, God is... Um, uh, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. And that abounding in steadfast love is that God is always loyal, always faithful, always lives up to, to covenant uh, promises. Is, is, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> and that sense of loyalty there. And here's a story where, in a sense, it's all about uh, chesed, about, about mm-hmm. covenant faithfulness. And yet it's not primarily about God doing it. It's people mo- it's sort of modeling in our lives, here's what it looks like. Um, so Boaz does it because he's the one who owns, who takes responsibility and owns mm-hmm. this role of being the kinsman redeemer, even though it will cost him money to buy the field. And it sort of changes his life course. You know, who, who knows what his plan was before he met Ruth, yeah. but he's willing to take, uh, not only to take on Ruth as a spouse, but also then to provide for Ruth and Naomi, mm-hmm. whatever other thoughts he had for life. Here's, here's how his life goes now. Um, and also that Ruth is this supreme example of covenant faithfulness because she, again, throws what would have been her homeland, that whole uh-huh. life that would have been there for her back in Moab, she, she, out of loyalty to her mother-in-law, continues to go with her. And again, changes the whole direction of the course of her life in order to be faithful to uh, this relationship that matters to her, to, to her mother-in-law. Um, that, that's a really important idea. And it shows up not in heroic deeds like with, with fireworks and you know, parting of seas, but in in ordinary conversation, in ordinary daily mm-hmm. acts, in, in, in things without without special effects. And it's you see it in Naomi too, in her care sure. for for Ruth and providing for Ruth. Sure. You know, when, when she doesn't have to. Right. You know, and she she connects she's the connector. She's kind of yeah. the schemer behind all this and says, Oh yeah, go to this field. Yeah. yeah because yeah. this is one of our kinsmen. You know, Ruth didn't just show up to some random field when she started right. plucking grain. She went to Boaz's field because right. Naomi knew Boaz was a good, faithful, yeah. steadfast, loving person. And so uh, you see it in all three of our main characters throughout this whole story. And as you said, Steve, it's not big and triumphant. It's just little daily kind of deeds. And th- and I think that's um, something about the steadfast love of God that we sometimes forget. Right. We I always mean, look for it in the big things, but sure. forget about the little daily things. Sure. And, I mean, often when Israel would remember and look at its poetry or its psalms about what God's faithfulness looked at, often they would invoke the memories of, oh, God, part of the sea, or God mm-hmm. brought... Yeah, those are absolutely true. But a really important idea in this story is that this kind of loving kindness, this kind of steadfast love, isn't just for those moments, but is practicable by human beings who are captivated by the character of this God who live in similar ways. So that mm-hmm. uh, in our in our own ways, we're called to... Well, it's, it, in some ways, it's that, that, that line I've heard attributed to Mother Teresa, that we can't do... Nobody can do great deeds. You can only do small mm-hmm. deeds with great love. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that that's very much what this story is about. That... Um, the, the biggest moment of action is somebody buying a field. <laughs> um, so real, if real estate transactions are your idea of, of uh, high anxiety uh, thriller, sort of, yeah, here's your story. But uh, it, there's something powerful happening in this quiet action of uh, Ruth being willing to go out and labor and glean the leftovers mm-hmm. in the field to provide for her and her mother-in-law, and Boaz recognizing what she's doing. But, and, and it, it, at every point, those three characters sort of take in their different roles the opportunity to show steadfast love to one another and that sense of loyalty. Again, 
Hesed is an important word because our culture tends to sentimentalize love and make it primarily romantic. And mm-hmm. Love is primarily, you feel butterflies when somebody walks in the room. No, there's very little of that going on. There's very little, you know, uh, mm-hmm. teeny bopper sort of uh, infatuation in the story. Um, and even, again, counter to our notion of how romance uh, works, Ruth doesn't approach Boaz and basically propose marriage to him uh, because, uh, you know, she heard music in the back of the room and she got this sort of like, you know, butterflies in her stomach feeling. This is this is how I'll be able to provide for Naomi and this will be the life that allows uh, righteousness to be done. And this, mm-hmm. this will allow for my mother-in-law to be provided for and for me as this foreigner to be provided for and for the, the land to c- continue on in the family line. She sort of gets that. It's, it's, it, it's not, not usually our, our, our modern way of telling romance is you fall in love from a look across a crowded room and then you know when you hear the, the birds chirping and that kind of thing and then you get married and mm-hmm. everything ties up. But instead there's a sense of of, of loyalty toward Naomi that, that, that drives us. And one hopes that eventually Boaz and Ruth loved each other or felt, you know, whatever kind of affection. But it starts with a sense of being loyal before it's about uh, affection, I guess. And I think the affection, you can kind of read it into the story because of how Boaz treats Ruth and, and just the care that he shows to her. Because um, he didn't have to. I mean, yes... The leftover grain is, by Israelite law, supposed to be for the widows and the orphans. Mm-hmm. But he even tells his workers to, to pull out a little bit extra right, right, for right. this young, you know, foreign yeah. girl. And yeah. he, he tells them, you touch her, you're out of a job, right, and you're right, never right. going to work in this town again. Right, right, right. And so, just again, it's that steadfast, it's that daily, day by day, you know, I'm not married, Steve, so I, I don't get this fully. But I know marriage is hard work, you know, a relationship is hard work, and it's... It can't just survive on on the big things, on the big romantic gestures. Right. It has to be that day by day care and love that you show one another. And we see that here with Boaz even before the the midnight proposal. Sure. Well, and I think I think that's an important piece too. That like even though this story is not primarily meant as a manual for relationships and dating, because uh, there's a lot more grain involved in the story than we would use. <laughs> in it. Um, but I do think there is this really important idea that often our culture I think gets backwards. Um, we we tend in our culture to think of love as you feel a certain way, and if I feel a certain way toward you, then I'll do nice things for you. That mm-hmm. love is uh, I, I've got butterflies in my stomach when you walk in the room, and therefore I will do big sweeping romantic gestures for you. I'll do the Lloyd Dobler with the speakers over my head, like in Say Anything, or the uh, you know meeting up on the top of the tower, like in um, uh, Sleepless in Seattle, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or the the stopping the airplane, you know, any of those big romantic gesture kind of things. And it's a lot less like that, certainly in this story, and maybe really in real life. That instead of saying, uh, I will do nice things for the people I feel a certain way toward, instead sometimes it's about doing good and watching the the emotions follow. Uh Um, And that means, too, that in any meaningful relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's parents and children, whether it's family, whether it's close friends, that genuine love isn't, I will be nice to you because I feel a certain way toward you. But even on the days when you've irritated me, I will be good to you. Even mm-hmm. on the days when you're acting like a stinker. Even on the days when I've been a stinker and I don't have the right to be nice to you. I will. You know, but it's it's in some ways about recognizing feelings don't come first logically in all this. Mm-hmm. It's about doing good for the benefit of others, even on the days when it's hard. Even when they've said something mean to you. Even when they you know forgot to take the trash out. Even when they, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and... That's a really, in some ways, radical idea. It shouldn't be radical, but like that—that's an important piece. And for maybe the last two hundred years in English and and American culture, the sort of like after Romanticism, we sort of picture. No, it's about the grand sweeping feelings, and then you do grand sweeping gestures, but you never Mm -hmm. see 
you know, at the end of so many romantic comedies, you never see what did this look like when they actually had to get through ordinary life, you know? Yeah. What did it look like when they had to buy groceries? And, you know, uh-huh. so they had this grand romantic gesture moment at the end of the movie, but uh, what did it look like when it's time for them to pay taxes or decide who stays home with the kids, any of those things? And Ruth is a story that's grounded in small actions of doing good to others that aren't just about this is a grand sweeping romantic gesture. And Steve, you said earlier, while God is kind of mentioned in conversation, he's mm-hmm. he's not he has no speaking roles in this, but yet he speaks so much through this. Sure, and, sure. and it's through those actions because those actions come through belief in God, and those are exactly what God does for us. Sure, sure, sure. You know, most of us have not experienced you know some sort of great miraculous event in our lives, like the parting of sea or something, right. or even just you know some of our more common miracles that you know. But every day, God, no matter how much we've been a stinker or how you know how good or how bad we've been, every day God shares His love with us. Yeah, and that faithfulness, um, I think, is is the bridge that the of, of all things you could say about God. It, it, Israel keeps coming back to whatever else is true about God. The God we meet in in covenant is, is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and mm-hmm. Jacob, is faithful. Is is uh, has this steadfast love, and that's the bridge, maybe for how we're called to treat and love one another. Mm-hmm. So we, we've talked a number of times along the way in our conversations, Erica, about the the recurring line in both the Old and New Testaments to be perfect like God is perfect, mm-hmm. be holy like God is holy, and how really often when those passages come up, it's grounded in well, what does that holiness or perfection look like? It's about it's really about love. It's about God's ability to love stinkers. It's about God's ability to be faithful, mm-hmm. faithful even when we're faithless. Um, and that that's the bridge point. There are some ways in which it's inappropriate for me to be like God or to, pre- to pretend to be like God. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, a lot of the times when human beings start thinking <laughs> that they should be acting like God, we get ourselves into trouble. We, we start building towers of Babel. We start killing each other. We, mm-hmm. we do all sorts of terrible things when we put ourselves in the place of God. But on this point, the scriptures, Old and New Testament alike, have this recurring idea. The notion of God's utter relentless faithfulness is is not only the defining character for God, but it's maybe the, the linchpin for uh, how we treat each other, that everything else is meant mm-hmm. to flow out of that kind of faithfulness for other people. Um, and if, if that's at the heart of it, and, and if Ruth uh, and her story tell us, like, here's what faithfulness looks like, um, then it also is important to recognize that faithfulness crosses boundaries that we might have assumed mm, were... Yeah were rigid fixed ones. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be possible